Well, good morning. I'd invite you to turn in your scriptures to John chapter 20. If you do not have a copy of the scriptures, you'll find one in the seat just before you. And I'll be on page 906. And the good news is that we have made this offer to people before. And Dave tells me uh, that some of the Bibles go missing and he has to restock the pews. And that is a good thing when people are carrying away God's word and reading it. Can you relate with any of these mindsets or emotions? Disillusionment. It's just not what you expected. Loneliness. You've been abandoned. Confusion. It just doesn't make sense. It wasn't supposed to go down like this. Fear. Your life is shaped by what has happened or what could happen or what others think. Disappointment. People have left you down and life itself is crushing down on you. What about hopelessness? You're discouraged and depressed. You're tired and you don't even seem to care. When Jesus was placed in a tomb as a dead man, these are most certainly some of the emotions the disciples were experiencing. I remember as a young boy sleeping at my cousin's house because the next day our families together were going to go to Dorney Park. How many of you have ever heard of Dorney Park? Okay, about four of you. <laughs> and that's because it is a small amusement park in eastern Pennsylvania. And it really, at least at that point, was not much to brag about. But to every rural Pennsylvanian kid, Dorney Park was a dream. And so we all gathered up and we were going to go over and spend the night at our cousins. So we were there and we, were, we couldn't sleep for two reasons. First one was we were getting to go to the Dorney Park. That was huge. But secondly, it was raining very heavy. And all of us kids knew that if it didn't stop raining, guess where we weren't going the next morning, Dorney Park. So I remember as a young boy, probably 8 to 10 years old, praying and asking God as fervently as a young church boy could pray that it would stop raining. And when we woke up, guess what? It was still raining. And I couldn't have been more disappointed, more dejected. The day before, we were playing with my cousin's plastic Star Wars figures. That's how old those are. And we were making forts, and we were shooting BB guns back near the farm field. But none of that held any attraction. Do you know why? Because we had set our hope to what was us, the highest thing that we could possibly hope for. That was Dorney Park. And Dorney Park never matured. I don't even remember visiting it ever again after that disappointing night. Now, as you grow up, we realize other disappointments hit us too, don't they? Other disappointments and pains and disillusionments that cause us to question even the character and promises of God. And we feel it. This is where the disciples found themselves at the end of chapter 19. Look at the last verse of chapter 19, verse 42. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they what? They laid Jesus 
there. This is a very important fact of the gospel. God's Messiah, the hope of the world, was executed like a defenseless animal. The Prince of Life hung on a Roman cross, lifeless. Can you feel that tension? Because John wants us to feel that tension, that emotion, that shock, that disappointment. The giver of life was placed in a tomb among the dead. The man they had left everything to follow now left them at the most important time. This is the man who, by the way, just recently said a day or two before, I will not leave you as orphans. And now they stand there orphaned. I'm not sure what darkness washed over their soul, what disappointment, what shock, but it was very real. And now what? Does Peter go back fishing? Well, he did. Do you go into an upper room and lock the door? Well, they did. Does Matthew go back to Rome and ask for his tax collecting job back? I mean, what do they do next? Can you feel the darkness and the letdown and even perhaps the cynicism creeping in? If the Gospel of John were an ordinary biography, there would be no chapter 20. I've read a biography of missionary Hudson Taylor. That biography ended with his death. There's nothing after that. I've read a biography of C.S. Lewis that ended with his, his death. I've read Undaunted Courage about Meriwether Lewis and Thomas Jefferson, and the second to last chapter is entitled The Last Voyage Where Lewis Takes His Own Life. And Jefferson, President Thomas Jefferson, also died. That's where biographies end. John is giving you, in a sense, a biography, but the, but the biography does not end at John chapter 19. And so you have this hinge chapter, which is John chapter 20. Everything forward pivots on this chapter. Three dark and fearful days pass, and then chapter 20 opens on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Look at John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene. What do you remember about Mary? Well, one of the most stunning details of her life is this is the Mary from whom Jesus expelled several demons. On the first day of the week, she came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, indicating someone had been there or perhaps even that someone is still inside so what does she do? Verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Most likely John, adding that little detail. And said to them, and by the way, I want you to notice this. Mary suggests the first false view of the resurrection, that the body was stolen. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So, two disciples sprint towards the tomb. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, the younger one, 
Maybe that's why he outran the older one, Peter. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, whether from fear or hesitation or out of respect for the elder Peter, he sits there stooping in and he at least sees some clothes. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, don't overlook the details that John provides. The tomb is empty, but not entirely. There is something in there that gives proof of a bodily resurrection. Something in there. And the way they're laying there that furnishes proof to those who are coming to gather to find out what they did with this body. That face cloth would have been that that type of handkerchief that is tied up around the chin and tied on top of the head to keep the jaw from falling open. But it's interesting the way it's laying there. The idea is it's folded up by itself, or it is still tied in that oval flap set aside by itself. Nobody, it seems, untied it. Nobody hurriedly stole the body and unwrapped the body. I mean, thieves don't typically do that. Somebody wasn't, this was not a Roman conspiracy. Something very deliberate happened. Something that eyewitnesses would notice. And the cloths, the linen cloths were lying there. And the head cloth, the face cloth wrapped by itself. Just as if a body passed through it. Just as if the resurrected body of Jesus Christ left those unneeded cloths behind. By the way, later in this chapter, just like He will appear in a locked room having passed through the door or the wall. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple. Okay, assuming this is John. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and what? Believed. There was something there in that scene, something in that setting, something within that almost empty tomb that caused this disciple to look and make sense of it and believe on a whole new level. It's interesting, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that specifically this part of the Scripture, that He must rise from the dead. They didn't have clarity on that. For some reason, they didn't understand that. One of the Scriptures indicates that they were prevented from seeing it. But as I studied through this, that, that phrase struck me. That isn't this our problem too? We don't understand the Scripture. I mean, we know facts about God. We have our verses memorized. We understand charts and timelines. And we get the organization of the books. We don't understand them intimately. We don't understand them to the point where they bear down with authority upon us. Like Peter, we often let our desires and expectations stand in judgment 
over God's word. Let me read you the account in Mark. Jesus began to teach them. Listen to how clear this is. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And He said this plainly. And that should have settled it, right? But it didn't. It didn't settle it for Peter who thinks he has a better way. It didn't settle it for Peter who thinks he has a better plan. Peter starts to shape the words of God into his own image. Folks, that is idolatry. And I want you to see how severe that is in Jesus' response. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, they were being influenced by satanic thinking through a disciple. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. It is satanic to reject God's word. It is satanic to shape God's word into your image. When the serpent, I mean, all you have to do is go back to the garden has God really said? And they disobey. Get behind me, Satan. Here's why. Jesus' words. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Our greatest problems are never around us. They are in us. Our words give indication that that is true. For out of the abundance of our heart, Jesus says what? The mouth speaks. Some of us have lived in a culture of fear for so long that we've come to accept it as normal. Peter lived in a culture of fear and he wanted to twist God's Word and he wanted to rebuke the Son of God. But there's hope. There's hope even for the most fearful here this morning. There is hope even for the most imprisoned this morning. So often Jesus carefully, tenderly, sometimes with a gracious rebuke said this, Do not fear, only believe. Whoever does not doubt in his heart, but believes, Jesus said. Where is your faith, he would say on occasion, Oh, you of little faith. Later on in this chapter, he's going to look at one particular disciple and he's going to say this. Do not be unbelieving, but what? Believing. This other disciple went in and he saw and believed because he did not yet understand the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, may it be God's Word that is our authority alone. Disciples went home, maybe to tell Thomas, but someone did not go home. Look at verse 11. But Mary, so Peter and this other disciple, they run back home. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. By the way, the angels chose not to reveal themselves to who? 
Peter and that other disciple. But they did choose to reveal themselves to Mary Magdalene. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. He repeats the question the angels ask. Jesus said to her, verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? A little bit of comical input here. Supposing him to be the gardener. Don't you love that detail? She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. But notice the respect and the loyalty and the servant's heart that Mary had. Now, I want you to notice 16. This is beautiful. I want you to notice what caused her to recognize him. Jesus said to her, what did he say? Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. John 10.27, Jesus taught this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The shepherd calls out a sheep's name, Mary. And she immediately identifies him. And you have this beautiful reunion that not even death can separate. That's one of the hopes of the resurrection. See, John and Peter saw the burial cloths. Mary sees Jesus. A woman with a checkered past who had been possessed by demons. And it seems as though through the very first resurrection appearance, God wants this imprint to be laid deep into us. That it is all of grace. It is unmerited and undeserved favor. It's not because Mary's checklist was more impressive than somebody else's. He appears to a woman as a free gift of grace who in society was most likely looked down upon for most of her adult life. Verse 17 introduces one of the difficulties of the passage. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, this seems to go against what he tells Thomas when he says, See, the wounds in my hands, touch them, and the wound in my side, go ahead, put your hand in. So it's not like she can't touch him. It's not like he's saying there cannot be an embrace. What he seems to be cautioning Mary against gently is, Mary wanted to cling to the personal presence of Jesus among them again. But he was only going to be with them personally for 40 more days. Because he even talks about his ascension. So don't cling to the fact that I am now with you. I told you I'm not going to leave you as orphans. But I need to ascend so that what? He can send to all people, all believers, his Holy Spirit. So don't cling to this reality that I will personally be with you. But like I said before, after I ascend, 
It's better for you that I go away so that I can send another to you. A comforter. An encourager. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and my God. But he commissions her. He commissions this woman to do what? But go to my brothers, verse 17, and say to them, these are the apostles, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, notice the vessel for witness to the apostles on this occasion. It's beautiful. She says, I have seen the Lord and that He had said these things to her. Now he moves from a resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene to a resurrection appearance to the disciples. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were. Why were the doors locked? John's going to provide that answer for you, right? The disciples were there for fear of the Jews. I mean, are they next? Some close up, some from a distance saw what the Romans can do. They saw how the scribes and the chief priests and the religious elite were able to get Jesus on a cross. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, and I'm going to tell you, this was not the emotion they were feeling. He says, peace be with you. Standard Hebrew greeting, but I'm sure there's much more involved when the resurrected Christ appears to you suddenly in a locked room and says, what? Peace. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he commissions them. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. How did the Father send Jesus? In humility, in shame, in rejection, into misunderstanding, into hostility, to death. Now as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. See, throughout John, Jesus is presented as the sent one, but now the sent one becomes the sender. As Jesus accurately represented the Father, now we accurately give witness to the Son for the glory of the Father. Then He empowers them with the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. They will do that by the accurate preaching of a gospel message. They will do that through the truth they preach as witnesses of Jesus Christ. See, he didn't leave them as orphans, did he? John 14, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. He breathes on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. You know what we see Peter doing in the early part of Acts? With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. But there's one who didn't believe Mary's testimony. Jesus commissioned her as a witness to the apostles. But there was one, and we're not given the reason why he wasn't there in the upper room, but there was one who wasn't. And now he doesn't believe the testimony, the witness of commissioned disciples. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. You know, even the things we miss in life, are by divine design. You ever feel like, oh, if I was just there. Or, oh, if I, I so regret not doing that. I had no idea that was going to happen. If I'd have known, I would have been there. Do you know that as we follow the Lord and are led by His Spirit, we are where God wants us? But Thomas, he wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, I mean, here's Thomas, an evidentialist. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never what? By the way, why is John writing this gospel? So that you may what? So that you may believe. Thomas wants physical evidence. And it seems as though our Lord doesn't just rebuke him, but sympathetically appeals to Thomas. Not right away. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, I mean, he just zeroes right in on him. I love this. This is so much like our Lord. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered him. By the way, it doesn't seem as though Thomas ever took that opportunity, does it? He sees him and he what? He believes. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't think this was a harsh rebuke. There may have, they merit, they, there may have even been slight, what, my, what one of my daughters calls the crinkles in the corner of the eyes. Have you seen because you have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen. This is a celebratory moment. This is incredible. His confession, my Lord and my God, is remarkable. He confesses the divine nature of Jesus, providing a fitting conclusion and appropriate response to who Jesus is. That's what Paul says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, 
my Lord and my God. If you do that, He is King. He is Lord. He is the Divine One. He's not just your friend. He is. But He is your King. And if you fully understand the Scriptures, you will understand this. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day. And Thomas makes the right confession. So Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe that? Here are the connections as we move towards the Lord's Supper. Several implications of the resurrection become clear, probably clearer to us as the readers of John's Gospel than even to them at that time. Probably the most obvious implication is that there is objective proof for Christ's resurrection. Predictive prophecy is fulfilled. You're not asked to believe a myth. You're allowed to prove it and test it and validate it. On seven, on seven separate occasions, Jesus foretold His own resurrection. In fact, Jesus never predicted His own death without an accompanying prediction of His own resurrection. On five of these occasions, Jesus specified not only the fact of His coming resurrection, but the precise timing after three days. You have predictive prophecy. You have an empty tomb. You have a not completely empty tomb. You have linen cloths and a head, a head cloth that is wrapped up by itself. And you have multiple eyewitnesses just in John 20. Objective proof for Christ's resurrection. Secondly, and as it moves more personally, in Christ, we too as believers are delivered from the grave. Let's put it this way. We too will leave our grave cloths behind. We don't need them. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are delivered from the grave. Third, in Christ we have life beyond the grave. That's what you see in John chapter 20. Jesus said to her in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's still looking at her and he says, do you believe this? Remember, Lazarus' resurrection was a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection. Number four, because of Christ's shed blood, death, and resurrection, our sins are forgiven and we have been reconciled. We have been brought back together with Him. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's not the first one to be resurrected, but He's the firstborn from the dead in that He was resurrected never to die again. Resurrected in conquering death. 
For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Then finally this morning, Thomas's confession exemplifies what it means to honor the Son as the Father is honored. My Lord and my God. Jesus takes a woman with a questionable background who had been demon-possessed to be the first eyewitness and verbal witness to the apostles. Jesus takes a weak disciple known as a doubter to make a right confession so that we would understand it's not the strength of our faith that saves, but the object of our faith that saves. Weak faith in the right object saves just as much as strong faith does. If the object is Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God, do you believe this? Look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have what? Life. Resurrection. Life in His name. Do you believe? Does your life reflect the joy and peace of one who is risen with Christ? And are we obeying Christ's command, His commission, to witness of His resurrection and make disciples? Is that what drives us as His followers? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Give us clarity where we do not yet understand it. Help us to know the joy and peace of Your presence with us. Of the confident expectation that is ours that You are risen from the dead. And in our union with You, we have already died. And we share a resurrection life because of Your work. Your accomplished work on the cross. Thank You for preserving Your Word to us so that we would believe and have life in Your name. Lord, even if someone here is still wondering if their sins are forgiven, wondering if Your grace really is this amazing, even in their weak faith, would they, like Thomas, say, My Lord and My God. For You have told us that if we confess You as Lord, and believe in our heart that You have been raised from the dead, we will be safe, rescued, saved. May that be the heart cry, the desperate heart cry of everyone here this morning. And now may we respond to this revelation through song and through the observance of communion. Would You have Your way in our heart Continue to lead us. Thank You for Your patience when we're like Peter who deny and contradict, like Thomas who doubt. 
God, thank you for your grace, even to us as your children. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Invite our music team forward as we sing and invite one another to come behold the wondrous mystery. And really, the gospel is just that. It is amazing grace, a wonderful mystery.